Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Indiana Athletic Trainers Association podcast, hosted by the Young Professionals Committee. The views and opinions expressed by speakers, guests, or others who have provided materials to and for this podcast are not necessarily those of the IATA. The IATA assumes no responsibility for, nor endorses any of the comments, recommendations, or materials that are provided. Do you need CEUs? Check out the IATA website, where you can find a link to EBP Central, working in collaboration with athletic trainers to continue Indiana's tradition of excellence. Thank you everyone for tuning in to the IATA podcast today. My name is Daniel Welty and I am a the IATA Young Professionals Committee Chair and will be today's host of the IATA podcast. We are hosting a two-part COVID-19 pandemic series where we will talk about how sports will return to play this fall, why athletic trainers should be in discussions about return to play, and what changes will need to be made to return student athletes back to sports this fall in a safe and healthy manner. On part one of the series today, we'll, we will specifically talk about the secondary school setting. Then in part two, we will dive into the college and university setting. We are pleased today to have Carl Palma on the show, um, who is an outstanding athletic trainer who provides athletic training services in a secondary school setting. Hi, Carl. Welcome to the show. Hey, Dan. Uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us today. Carl, before we get started in the podcast, uh, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners? Yeah, no problem. Uh, I'm Carl Palma. I'm a 2008 graduate of University of Indianapolis's uh, athletic training program. Um, I am the athletic trainer at Beach Grove High School. Um, it's on the southeastern side of Indianapolis. Um, I've been there for 10 years now and currently employed through Community Health Network. Um, one thing that I, I am going to get out of the way here is these are my um, opinions and views on things. They don't represent Community Health Network's stance on any of the COVID-19 things that we talk about, and it also doesn't represent anything that we are doing at Beach Grove City Schools. So. Thank you so much, Carl, for that. So I just want to let everyone to, today know, again, we're talking about um, COVID-19 and returning back to sports this fall. What I'm going to do is kind of run back, um, back to March and kind of go through some press releases through the Governor Holcomb's office, the IHSAA. Um, we'll kind of do some questions and then really dive into some recommendations and things athletic trainers and sports medicine professionals should be concerned about um, when they return back to sports this fall. So I'll go ahead and get started here. So on March 6th, Governor Holcomb's office released a statement that the first COVID-19 case um, was um, in Indiana and, inside, and signed an executive order declaring it a public health emergency. That same day, the IHSAA released a statement that they were aware of the case in Marion County and that they would continue to monitor the develops, developments and listen to medical experts to keep everyone safe. On March 12th, Governor Holcomb's office released a statement that limited social gatherings to 250 people, um, said that people, if you were sick or they were at high risk, to stay home, and then also suspended non-essential travel for state employees. Again, on March 12th, the IHSAA released a statement that state tournaments would continue, but with limited to no spectators. Uh, March 17th, Governor Holcomb's office signed an executive order that closed bars and restaurants to in-person dining, 
and postpone any elective surgeries at hospitals. Um, on March 19th, uh, the IHSAA released a statement that the boys basketball state tournament was canceled. And so I think for many people in Indiana, uh, when you cancel basketball, that's a, that's a pretty big deal in our state. So um, yeah, definitely. And then our, uh, on that same day, on March 19th, the um, Indiana Department of Education released a statement that schools were going to be closed until May 1st, and e-learning would continue uh, when schools had the ability to do so. Um, at the beginning of April, the IHSAA released a statement that all spring sports were canceled. Um, so some pretty big news um, across Indiana and even across um, the country that was happening, swing sports being canceled. So I kind of just want to stop right there and Carl and just kind of ask you, um, you know, with things being canceled and the entire spring sport season being canceled, um, what kind of support did you provide um, to your patients or maybe others within your school due to the canceling of sports? Um, well, I think, like you said, that anytime basketball gets canceled in Indiana, that's, that's, a, that's something that's major. Um, we, our boys basketball team actually had won their sectional. We were supposed to leave uh, to go out to Greencastle to play in the regional that Saturday. So we found out Friday afternoon that that was not going to happen. Um, as far as providing support to our athletes, I'm, um, I do a lot through social media. Um, I don't, I make it a point not to give out my personal uh, cell phone number, but that way kids have a way to try and get a hold of me or um, a way to get in contact if they need something. Um, I've had a few that I've been sending home exercise programs to continuing their rehab. Um, I've had a few that have just, um, whether it was through DMs on Twitter or um, some other way of just getting in contact just for mental health, just because they're dealing with a lot with their seasons being canceled, with their tournaments being canceled. Our boys basketball team um, went through a lot the year before and then to win a sectional again um, and then not get to continue down that road in a regional that was regional that was really winnable for us. Um, was heart wrenching for those guys. So being able to be there for them if they needed somebody to talk to, or you know, maybe even scream at over the phone, um, that's one of those things that I try and provide for our kids in the athletic training room. Um, when we don't have that available, I wanted them to know that I was still there. So it was a lot of through Twitter, through social media. Um, a few of them that whose parents I know really well um, were able to reach out on some things too. So. Um, Originally, we were going to, before they kind of shut everything down, um, continue like a case-by-case -case basis, athletic training, um, either out of my house or, or whatever we could do to get kids taken care of, because still, we still have kids that are post-surgical or coming back through a major rehab, and while everything in the world kind of stopped, they still have to figure out a way to recover. So once Governor Holcomb signed all the things where basically we'd shut down restaurants, shut down bars, shut down um, basically any semblance of normal life, that would, was a determination at that point that we couldn't do that. Um, so it was more check-in, um, either via Zoom, Google Meets, a few different ways that we did things, and then being able to send home exercise programs and that based on what they're going through. Uh, a lot of work on your end, I, I imagine, just you know, that communication is much different 
you know, via Zoom or Skype or something versus in person. But glad you provided that yeah. as support to them. Um, you know, you talked about you doing some still some work with the high school um, student athletes. Now, were you ever reassigned? I know you work for community health. Were you ever reassigned um, to do something maybe in the hospital? And then maybe how has that reassignment made you a better athletic trainer? Um, they did. So the first couple of weeks of that, we were hoping, you know, this was going to be a short term thing. And then we would be back in the schools um, beginning April. And the longer it went on, it looked like that wasn't going to happen. Um, so for community, we have a um, reallocation pool. Basically, we all were, uh, our sports medicine program was told we need to sign up through this uh, network reallocation assignment form. And they basically will find some place for us to work um, while we're on hiatus from the high schools um, or secondary school or any of the athletic trainers. And they did it for, we ended up with quite a few by the end of them shutting down elective surgeries and all that stuff, um, people that were, had no jobs. Um, so being able to move them to places where they needed us. Um, a lot of the sports medicine department got reassigned to what's called a proning team. Um, so at the hospital, we uh, were on call essentially and sat in a, um, a room inside that hospital. Um, and the nursing staff would call us if they needed to flip a patient from their back to their front or from their front to their back. Uh, number one was to deal with any type of bed sores or irritation or that kind of thing from laying in a bed all day. The second part was uh, some of the studies were showing that these uh, COVID patients would respond really well as far as their lung reco lungs recovering and um, oxygen flow to that prone position where they're able to let part of their lungs expand a little bit differently when they're on their stomach versus when they're on their back. So they put us in those positions. Um, I got reassigned to one at, at the South Hospital um, and worked on that until last Wednesday. So about nine weeks, nine and a half weeks that I was on that team. Um, and they have since moved us off that in plans of everything starting up here in the next couple of weeks for sports. Great. So as far as that making me a better athletic trainer, um, being able to be in a hospital um, and know that we're able to help in those situations for that kind of thing, that we have the training. And it really was a lot like spine boarding. Um, so it's not, it wasn't anything that was outside our scope of practice. It wasn't anything that was um, crazy different. It was just learning how to do it with different materials and different supplies. Um, and then having, you know, the, the nursing staff there to kind of walk us through what we needed to do with different lines and all the PPE we had to put on every day. And um, it was a learning experience, but it's something that I think made each of us better. Um, and it kind of proved our worth a little bit too, that, hey, we're not just orthopedic people that sit in high school all day and deal with sports. Like we can do some other things and help out in some places um, that they didn't expect us to be able to. Great, great, great to show our value as athletic trainers and our yep. round skill set there. So um, I know with COVID-19 um, pandemic, um, you know, there's a lot of negatives and a lot of disappointments. Again, kind of what we talked about with the spring sports being canceled. <laughs> um, but, you know, I tried to find a silver lining in all of it. And um, one of the things I was thinking about was how this kind of gave student athletes or athletes in general, even up to the professional level, some time off, quote unquote, you know, um, to take time and stop that year round training and year round competition. So 
maybe you could talk maybe a little bit of maybe some positives um, that this kind of provided for athletes for taking this break um, from that year round training and competition. Yeah. Um, being in a, a small school uh, or smaller school where we have a lot of three sport athletes, um, they don't get much time off anymore. Um, summers used to be kind of the time off and those are gone now um, in the world we live in. I mean, most of my athletes that are three sporters will run from football to basketball to baseball or track. And then as soon as that season's over, they're back doing workouts and conditioning for uh, summer. So it's a never ending cycle. And a lot of them do get burnt out on it. Um, I've talked with a couple of athletes that had told me they weren't going to play a sport or they didn't want to do a sport next year that are really excited to get back to it this year. Cause, and I think a lot of it's because they've had that break in that time to kind of recover. Um, another thing that we, I mean, didn't see much of because we didn't have it was a lot of the repetitive um, motion type injuries because by the time we got to the end of basketball and they really start to break down or the end of winter sports and they start to break down and then we go in the spring season and they really, those kids really get beat up. It didn't happen. So as, as much as that was horrible for them because they didn't get to compete, they didn't get to do a lot of that stuff. I think their bodies will thank them over time for that ability. Um, and then again, with some of the, some of my, um, the long-term rehab kids that I've had, it gives them time to really focus on their rehab and really focus on correcting motion patterns and correcting the things that, that they were missing without the added pressure of having to get back on the field right this second. So there was, we almost got like a two month rehab timeframe where we didn't have coaches pressuring or pushing or anything like that because there wasn't anything to push them back to. So I think those kids in the long run will, will be, uh, will benefit a lot from that too. So, I mean, it, it was, it, I feel for all those kids, like I couldn't imagine, especially some of the seniors losing the ability to do the things that you love and care about. But in the long term, talking about overall health and wellness and, and um, worrying about these kids 10 years down the road, which is kind of our job as athletic trainers, I think it's beneficial. Yeah, so. hard to, sometimes it's hard to understand in the moment. Um, and obviously, like you said, you felt for them, but you know, their bodies will thank them 10 years down the road. So. Exactly. Especially high school kids that think 10 seconds ahead and they have no clue what they're doing in 20 minutes. Yeah. So getting them to see the big picture is hard, but I think the, in, in a few years, they'll understand it. Absolutely. So I'm going to keep moving along with our timeline here. Um, at the beginning of May, um, the IHSAA released a statement that if student athletes had a physical on file for the 2019-20 school year, then they did not need a new pre-participation physical for the 2020-21 school year. So I was wondering if you could talk about um, that statement that they released, talk a little bit more information about that, as well as maybe why that decision was made to do so. Um, I know. A and I, th I think kind of a couple of different situations happened as to why that came about. Number one is we didn't know at that time where we would be at come June and July. And so getting a physical when physician's offices aren't open, med checks aren't open. A lot of these places have, you know, no staff there because we're dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic makes it really difficult. So then all of a sudden we have these kids that, 
have a physical from last year, but they don't have one for this year. Well, it's going to make it really difficult to get them in. And especially with all of the guidelines that these offices are having to follow, they're having to half staff and they're having to half all of their um, patient income um, or uh, patients coming into their office, then it makes it really difficult. Um, for the most part, a lot of these kids, especially our high school athletes, aren't dealing with a lot of health issues to begin with. Um, and then also with the, with a physical, um, or a pre-participation physical from, for a, for sports, they're not checking all of the, the things in depth. They're not doing blood work. They're not doing all these, um, you know, glucose and, and LDL and HDL and all this, these things with that. They're basically looking at them, listening to their heart and lungs, taking a patient history. And from that determining, do we need to check more and do some more lab work and do some more um, type of screenings and testing? Or are they pretty healthy as an individual, as a teenage kid, and will probably do fine in athletics? Um, so the physical, the difference between like an IHSAA physical for sports versus like a physical and wellness screen are very different things. So we're not telling our kids not to go to your normal doctor, yearly doctor checkup. I still, if you can get in, go, because I want to know all of that information on you, but we can't punish kids that can't get in or have a rough time getting in because of this pandemic and the fact that they just can't physically do it. So, um, I think that was part of it. I know a few other states also have already rolled over to a two-year cycle on that kind of stuff, and that was pre-pandemic. Um, so, I think that was kind of where the IHSA was leaning to begin with, was starting to think about maybe we roll to a two-year period on, on uh, physicals, um, and that may have gone into it as well. I don't know. I haven't haven't really spoken with any of the, the commissioners on all of that stuff. So um, I like it as a decision um, just because of the time we're in. I, it worries me a little bit because of the amount of things we don't know. But then again, like I said, the, the IHSA physical doesn't catch a lot of that stuff to begin with. So um, especially when we were doing the mass physicals and that kind of thing, those are really just basically making sure that we, we're not seeing anything on paper or any health history stuff that are big red flags that we need to get checked out further. Great. Now you mentioned kind of the difference between a sports physical and then a wellness exam, maybe with a, a pediatrician or a family doctor. And specifically we're talking about secondary school, you know, student athletes, I'll just say secondary school, um, children, individuals here. So why is it still important for them, them to go to their yearly wellness visit to their doctor, even though that they may not be getting a physical as well? So why is it important to continue to go to those wellness visits yearly? Um, I, part of it is their pediatrician knows them better than anybody. So they know their health history. They know their parents' health history for the most part. Um, they, know, you know, they know a lot of that stuff that we don't as athletic trainers. Um, and that don't get picked up or caught on that physical every year. Um, I, I've, I've had athletes that I know their family has a history of heart issues and um, has, they've been working through all that stuff and checking these kids every year. And yet when they go to our mass screenings, they just get checked off and cleared. And that's, that's no fault of anybody at the mass screenings. It's just 
they're pediat- they're not their pediatrician. They don't understand all the history that goes behind that. So I think the the wellness visits and that those type of things are very important in that they're going to catch a lot more of the family related type things, sudden cardiac type illness, um, red flags. Um, and then also understanding that at a lot of those, there are shots, there's blood work, there's, um, vaccines, there's things that those kids have to do with those. Um, where if they already, those secondary school kids, those high school aged kids, if they already have them scheduled and are able to get in, I want them to go anyways. And if they're doctor then wants to sign off on the IHSA physical, then we have a new one for this year. That's great. And that's, that's fine. But I don't, I worry more about their health and well being than having a piece of paper that says Absolutely. you're fine to play sports. So that's, that's a lot more beneficial and a lot more um, one of my bigger worries than it is about having these physicals that say that, you know, based on these check boxes, you can play sports. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, one thing I do want to mention here um, in that IHSAA uh, statement, it did talk about if you didn't have a physical for the 1920 school year, you will need to get a new physical. So just so people know that, that if you didn't have one on for the 1920 school year, you will need to have one if you're going to participate in uh, sports for the 2021 school year. Yes, yes definitely. Um, moving along on our timeline, um, on actually on May 1st, um, Governor Holcomb, um, he released his statement with the uh, Back on Track uh, Indiana plan uh, to reopen the state of Indiana. Um, it was like a five-step um, reopening plan, slowly reopening. Um, so he released that on May 1st. And then on May 6th, the IHSAA released a statement that all school-sponsored activities were canceled through June 30th. Uh, and as long as nothing else changed, um, they could resume on July 1st. Um, on June 5th, um, the IHSA released a statement that they were going to use the COVID-19 health and safety re-entry guide document that was provided by the state of Indiana. Um, if you go on to the IHSA website, you can actually find that statement and find that link uh, to that document. Um, it is actually called, the document's actually called Indiana's Consideration for Learning and Safe uh, Schools um, in Class. Um, kind, of a, kind of how do we re-enter into the fall, not only just with uh, athletics, but also with school in general. And in that document, if you go to Appendix C, um, it's the Indiana's Extracurricular and Co-Curricular Re-Entry Considerations. So I'm going to talk just briefly kind of what I was reading here with that document. Um, it looks like with sports, you know, specifically, there's going to be a, a three-phase return um, back to athletics. So that first phase, and I'm just going to highlight a few things in each phase, and then we'll kind of talk about that. So phase one, it starts on July 6th and runs through July 19th. Some of the things that they were limiting were like student athletes could only be um, on campus for 15 hours a week. School contact activities, including conditioning and sports-specific activities. No sport may have more than two activities per calendar week. Um, and they also have to register that uh, with the athletic director in, in that office. Um, activity days were going to be limited to three days per week. Um, conditioning is limited to four days per week. And only student-athletes could, could go to one session of conditioning per day. Um, and then in bold, right in that document, it says all summer activities are voluntary. 
Um, and then if we, um, and then also at the bottom of that, those bullet points in that time frame, no formal competition is allowed just yet. Then in phase two, that's gonna start July 20th um, to August 15th. Uh, the biggest part with that one that I was kind of reading was um, that pool usage was gonna be acceptable um, as long as everyone's taking their steps and hygiene to make sure. And then no formal competition is allowed except the exception of girls golf and the IHSAA made a statement um, about that starting before the 15th. And then basically on the 15th, that's when competitions can kind of begin. So um, again, that document's all there, kind of lists some things. It also lists a lot of things that we should be aware of, and I think we're gonna just kind of jump into here. So um, the first thing as I kind of question to you, Carl, is why is it important not only for student athletes and their body physically, but also for COVID-19 concerns, why is it important to slowly re-enter re back into activity? Um, let's start with just the, without COVID-19, um, these athletes, most of them have been home since the beginning of March. Um, and if, if anybody that's listening out there has met a high school aged kid, you can send them all the workouts in the world. Most of them, um, even some of the most motivated ones don't do them uh, as much as they should, and they don't push themselves as hard as they should. So the biggest concern um, that myself and a lot of uh, the athletic trainers I've talked to and a lot of our sports med departments, um, the, the biggest worry is we're going to do this in Indiana at the beginning of July. So we're looking at, you know, 90 degree temperatures, 80% humidity, working with deconditioned athletes. Um, so heat illness has become a very real thing. Um, rhabdo, um, rhabdomyolysis becomes a very real thing. Um, we're looking at a lot more soft tissue, muscle strains, um, those type of injuries because these athletes are deconditioned, which is why they put forth so many of these hour guidelines and time frame guidelines and um, amount of time they're allowed to be at each one and they can't go to two in the same day. Um, because while our coaching staffs and everybody wants to get back to things, these athletes, a lot of them probably haven't done much for three months. So um, just that alone becomes a major concern. Um, so then you take, COVID um, and add that to the mix. And I think um, everybody out here or out there has heard about or had, it will at this point have heard about what's going on at, at Houston, University of Houston, where if you don't slowly reintroduce everybody and keep everything potted and in different pools so they're separated and they're not contacting everybody, you bring in one athlete that has COVID or may not even be symptomatic, but comes in and, and is a spreader or a carrier, all of a sudden your whole athletic department's at risk. And now we go from hopefully following these steps, you know, Jul um, July 6th to the uh, 19th to August 15th and being able to get back to normal sports. And your athletic department may be, may be shut down for five days. It could be two weeks. It could be months. It doesn't, it, we're not really sure how all that's going to work yet at the secondary school level. So, and is it one case that shuts it down? Is it multiple cases? So as much as we can limit the amount of contact and kind of keep everybody the same groups together, at, at least initially, 
that way we can kind of see how this is going to form out and how it's going to work as we move back into trying to get back to some sense of normalcy in athletics. Whereas if we go um, the route that some people would like to and just throw everything back in and let's go because we're ready to reopen and coaches want to coach and we want to play and everybody wants to get back to normal, we're end up with kids in the hospital with not only heat illnesses, but we're ending up with this massive community spread of a virus that we have no vaccine and no way to treat. So it becomes really scary if you don't do it correctly. And that's part of us, you know, as athletic trainers being there and the importance of us being there is to not police everything because we want, we're on a power trip and we want to do it. It's because we want to make sure that this, we can slowly move back into normal and stay there. Because as much as they miss sports, we miss, we miss it too. I mean, I haven't met an athletic trainer that works in a secondary setting that has said, oh, I love working in the hospital and I love doing all these different things. It's great for us. It shows our worth. But I'm pretty sure most of us would rather be at our high school with our kids doing the things that we love. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you talk about making sure that we're doing this right. And I think that's super important, um, you know, not only from the state of Indiana, but each school and each hospital system, just making sure we're doing this right. And everyone wants, like you said, getting back to normal. Um, so I kind of want to dive into, I think, one big thing, um, you know, especially in the hospital setting is um, every single patient that comes in the door is being screened, signs of symptoms and a temperature check. So I don't know any, if there's been any conversations that you've had with uh, Beach Grove High School or with and then with your employer community health on kind of maybe how some of the screening will happen will it be before school after school kind of give me some things that you're thinking about or what you've been told from that regards um so we still don't have everything set in stone yet um so i have we have meetings this week both um the at the community health network level and then uh with you know, the upper administration at Beach Grove as to how we're going to do things and what we're going to require, what we aren't going to require. Um, who's, part of it is financials, who's paying for what, who's going to make sure that these kids have face coverings if we're going to do that, like those kind of things, who's going to pay for sanitation materials. So there's a lot that goes into it. Um, so I don't have anything finite in detail. Um, so I think starting with um, the, the screening process personally, and this has been one of my things that I, I've put out to our administration, to community as well, is that I think that that's as important as anything else. Cause if we don't do it, then we're setting ourselves up for letting a kid come in that does have symptoms and is positive without us knowing it. And then we're on the back end trying to track everything. So I've been a strong proponent of we need to take temperatures of every kid when they come to practice or when they come to their conditioning session. I know it's going to slow things down, but I think we need, because you can't count on these kids to be honest. Um, as much as I love my high school students, they are going to lie through their teeth if it means they can't go to practice today. So if that means that they, you know, they have to go home or that they have to go to the doctor. So I think taking that temperature is really important. The screening questions that a lot of the hospitals are using and that most places are using, those are important as well. Have you been around anybody that's either tested positive or had symptoms? Have you had a cough? Have you had anything outside of normal for you that fits this COVID uh, profile? 
that doesn't mean that if they say yes to one or two of those things that we're, you know, chopping them off and saying, no, there's no way, but maybe we strongly talk with that person's parent and be like, all right, so they had these two or three things on this list. They didn't have a temperature, but this might be something where we look at, you know, maybe antibody testing or some type of something where we can get a little bit more info and make sure that they aren't COVID positive. Um, and that that's kind of the conversation I've had with people is if we don't do that on the front end, then we're ending up with a kid that's been to practice five times that was COVID positive. And now we have to figure out all the people that he's come in contact with. And now we got to figure out all the people that those people have come in contact with. And all of a sudden our athletic department shut down again. So like I said, I want to, we want to get this right one time and have to do it once, not be in such a hurry to get back to normal and back to athletics that we end up having to shut things down two or three different times. Um, Cause that's just, first off, it prolongs everything. So it means we don't have the things we love for that much longer. And second off, it's just not a, it's a terrible model. Um, from a, and then leaving yourself open for the, the issues of possible liability and lawsuits and those kind of things that could come from not doing things the right way and putting other kids at risk because of it. So I, the one I push, I push very strongly for us to do screening, whether that happens or is followed, um, I don't know. At this point, we haven't had those discussions yet. And then there will be a much stricter policy, I'm sure, for my athletic training room versus outside sports in school because it's a medical facility because I'm going to have a lot more contact with kids that are potentially sick or injured and that kind of thing. So we want to make sure that we're not spreading it in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's just say um, that you did, you know, the school and community health and you guys were like, okay, let's, we want to screen everyone um, even before practices and do temperature checking. Um, you know, most secondary schools have one, two athletic trainers. So um, there's going to be a lot of involvement, I presume, from other staff as well as coaching staff. So how would you kind of present, let's say, like I just said, we want to do temperatures before every single practice. How would you go about implementing something of that nature with the coaching staff and with the uh, school district? Okay. Um, and that's, that's perfect. Um, we use... Um, shameless plug here, uh, final forms for Beach Grove City Schools. I know other schools use rank one. Um, you could do it with an Excel spreadsheet in the same way that we're doing, looking at doing it with final forms that other schools are looking at doing it with their medical um, electronic um, documentation systems. Um, basically doing attendance daily, which if coaches aren't okay with doing attendance daily, I'm not really sure why that's or where the issue is there. Um, having somebody that's designated to then take the temperature and record that temperature for each kid. Um, and then checking either yes or no in those boxes on Excel or for us, final forms for other schools, rank one for sportswear, whatever system they're using. Um, most of them have a way to build out something like that, where that's basically check boxes, yes or no. So that way, not only do you, are you screening these kids daily so you can catch them when they come in, you also have the documentation on the back end in case something comes down and is an issue that we, you know, we documented this person said no to all these questions. They didn't have a temperature, but then we find out that they were positive 
for COVID, okay, well, we did all the things we were supposed to do. So we're covered as far as letting this kid participate and do the things because there's no way for us as a secondary school, especially a small, smaller size school in the state of Indiana to do COVID testing on every kid every day. Like the, the cost behind that is astronomical. So that's the only thing that I think uh, can think of that's going to kind of keep us covered on that. And whether that's through, you know, some system that's already set up, like I said, you can kind of do the same thing with an Excel spreadsheet. That's what we've always done prior to using all these fancy systems that have come out over the past few years. We had an Excel spreadsheet for, you know, uh, physicals for any documentation that they needed in and then for um, attendance every day. So that was how most of our coaches track things. I don't see other than the time it's going to take at the start of practice to get all of that stuff done. There's really not a lot of boundary to it. That's going to make it more difficult. So. Yeah. And then you also mentioned about the athletic training facility um, and kind of, let's just talk maybe about screening and uh, temperature checking. Is that something that you maybe plan to do as soon as somebody wants to come into the room there that you want to do that, even though that you may have seen them at soccer practice and help with temperature checks Maybe they're coming into the athletic training facility because they sprained their ankle. Are you going to rerun that screening and rerun a temperature? I guess kind of what are you thinking on that regards? Um, I'm thinking yes, just because I want that separate. And like I said, I don't know if the high school or community is going to set those guidelines for the, the coaches. In a perfect world, they set those and it's we've already kind of dealt with this on the front end. Um, I'm not so sure on temperature checks for kids that are coming in like from a, a practice or that kind of thing, because it's going to be so skewed from them being outside and sweating and running around and doing those kind of things. But still asking, I still think doing those screening questions, even a second time in the same day, isn't going to hurt anything. And they do if you know, I've been in the hospital enough where we've walked through this stuff. Um, it takes a couple minutes. So it's not like it's taking 20 minutes for them to fill out some form every time. Um, so I don't think it's, it's um, outrageous to ask them to do that again. And then also the way it's going to change our timeframes, just COVID in general and how we're doing things in an athletic training facility. Um, we're going to have to have time in between patients and, you know, to sanitize and do that kind of thing. So that's something we can do in that timeframe where things are being cleaned too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, since we're talking about the athletic training facility, athletic training mm -hmm. clinics, um, you know, I was kind of thinking, you know, um, every secondary school knows the after school rush, um, right after school ends and it's like half an hour to an hour and you're just like cranking out treatments and all kinds of things and getting everybody ready for their, their activities for that day. And, um, you know, in my mind, I remember one day when I was at the high school, we saw 40 patients in an hour, me and my coworker yeah. and it's like, wow, I can get really crazy. So um, anything that you, obviously the practice schedules, like there's a lot of unknowns, I think right now. Um, but what are some things that you're going to maybe try to implement or have thought about to maybe try to keep, you know, um, volleyball and soccer and football and everyone kind of separate from each other, but still giving them the opportunity to come to the athletic training facility while still keeping social distancing. So the one thing that I've thought of, and I, I think thinking that same time frame that, you know, right after school, that first half hour to an hour, it's, it's insane. Um, and that's not going to be able to happen. 
um, right now. It, it's just, there's no way to do it safely. So that's something I've been thinking about for a couple of weeks now, trying to plan this all out. Um, I think we're going to have to push away a lot from preventative taping and wrapping and maybe move more towards bracing and that kind of thing, just because we can't have that many kids in and out in 20 minutes. Um, where you know, normally on a given day, if I'm, you know, if I've got 10 kids that come in and need their ankle taped, I can knock that out in 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something like that. But I can't because of the sanitation times and having to change everything every time a kid comes in. We, it, that 10 minutes becomes 45 to 50 minutes. Well, now they're a half hour late to practice. So one of the things I thought about was instead of them coming to me is me coming to them um, because they're all going to be in their practice areas to begin with um, and taping off of a bleacher or taping off the bench um, at the soccer field or those kind of things for that, those type of treatments. A lot of that stuff's really mobile. Um, having also having like their own, this is your pre-practice routine. So that way they're not relying on me to treat them. Um, they're relying on themselves to do the treatment themselves. I'm giving them the tools to do it, but that way they're not relying so much on a facility and a person. And they're relying more on themselves to get, to take care of their own bodies. Um, so it moves them a little bit more towards our autonomy too, on that, that, that end of things. Um, as far as like, um, evaluation rehab, like the more labor intensive ones, I'm really thinking we're going to have to schedule them. It's going to be a lot more like a therapy clinic model or like an athletic training in a clinic type model where we're scheduling these every 20 minutes or every 30 minutes, just because I can't have, I can have my office, I can have two or three maybe and continue social distancing. Um, depending on what equipment they're using. So if I've got three kids coming in at the same time with an ankle sprain, well, all three of those kids are going to use the same equipment. So that's not really feasible because I can't transfer equipment from one kid to the next without sanitizing in between. So it's going to be a lot of weird scheduling and trying to fit kids in and depending on if they're able to practice versus they're not able to practice. That's why I'm thinking a lot more of it is going to be athletic training on, or mobile athletic training on the move rather than them coming to a specific facility for those, those minor treatments and those things pre-practice. So, so definitely have a uh, golf cart or a movable device with be able to carry some of these things as well. I mean, that's, yeah. that's huge. Yeah. Some of the, the um, carts um, I've got a, a wagon, my kid's old wagon that I'll use to carry stuff around. Like there's, there's different things I've thought of just because I know it's going to be weird and I want to be, if this doesn't work, I want a backup plan for my backup plan for my backup plan. Cause you know, inevitably we're going to go do something and this is my perfect world. This is going to work great. And then I'm going to go do it and it's going to be terrible, not work at all. And I'm going to have to figure out a new way to do it. So great thing about athletic trainers is we're good at improvising. So it's kind of right up our alley right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, sanitizing equipment um, in between things or maybe sanitizing a taping table, treatment table and those types of things. Um, any thoughts that you've had? I know that many athletic trainers do this cleaning anyways, um, but maybe some thoughts about keeping a clean and safe athletic training facility from a sanitation standpoint, but then also maybe some policies, procedures that athletic trainers should think about as well to implement. 
Um, so the biggest thing is following what sanitation chemicals or cloths or wipes or whatever you're using and following the directions. Um, the ones, uh, the ones that I use have a two minute contact time, which means that I have to make sure that that area is cleaned and then it has to sit for two minutes to allow it to do its work. Whereas, you know, that's great. I could go in, take that same wipe and wipe down the table really quick. And so it looks wet and then the next kid can hop on it, but it really hasn't had time to do any of the dis disinfectant. So I think whatever one you're using, know the contact time it needs to be on that surface for it to do its job. Um, there's some that are two minutes. Um, there are some that are 10. And it, it really depends on what you, first off, what you're able to get your hands on in the time we're living in, because a lot of things are impossible to find right now. Um, but then understanding, like if you're, if the chemical you're using says 10 minutes, that means 10 minutes. That doesn't mean you can do it at eight and a half and call it good. Cause then you are risking something happening. And if they can trace it back to your athletic training room or your athletic training facility, then you're putting yourself in a, in a bad situation from a legal standpoint. And that that's been my base concern with all of this is we're going to follow things to the T because I want to make sure kids are healthy and I want to make sure that there's nothing that's going to come back on me from this. Um, it's a little bit of selfishness in that, but it's, you know, and like you said, a lot of people have already been working on sanitizing and cleaning after every athlete. We've dealt with MRSA. We've dealt with some other things, H1N1 and some other things in our time frame that have been somewhat similar um, to where we're, we have to be a little bit more conscious about san uh, sanitizing. Um, hand sanitizer, making sure that you have the right one that's over 60%. That is, you know, and the CDC and some of those, uh, the government websites have a list of these are approved or you can search you know, a certain one and see if it is um, or, or does uh, sanitize for COVID or coronavirus. So um, that's kind of a good, good resource out there. As far as policies behind it, make sure you know who's in or what your policy is or what your plan is for cleaning, who's doing it, um, how long, um, and not just tables, but also the, the, um, you know, we use ankle weights. I use, I have a BAPS board. I've got um, foam rollers, which is, they get used a ton, but you can't just transfer it from one kid to another like we used to. You have to actually sanitize it in between each. So is there a way to actually sanitize a foam roller? I don't know at this point. That's something I'm working on, like the, the, the actual foam covering ones, or do we need to get something that's more PVC pipe based? So that way it is an actual flat surface instead of foam. Um, so those type of things to think about. Um, and then, like I said, the timeframes. Um, and then with all of that hand sanitizing. So our hospital policy is in between touching anybody. So if I put my hand on one or I tape one kid's ankle and I got another kid hopping up there to tape his ankle, I'm going to hand sanitize in between. All right. So every time you touch something, hand sanitize. Now more than ever, anytime you touch any surface, hand sanitize in between. So we're going to run through hand sanitizer at Beach Grove like it's, you know, you might as well buy stock in it because we're going to use a ton of it. So, um, but it's really developing and knowing your timeframes on those things. Um, like I said, a lot of people just wipe it and because it was a antibacterial wipe, we wipe it and move on with our day. 
but if you're not paying attention to the things that it actually requires you to do with each one and don't understand the directions and the chemicals and all that, then you're putting yourself in a bad situation to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, also in this in-class document, it does talk about, you know, equipment being shared that if, you know, um, weight room facilities or um, other equipment that it's prior cleaning, that it's cleaned prior to use and immediately after usage. And again, I think that's a great point of making sure that you know what chemical you're using and what the disinfectant instructions are and how long it has to sit on there for it, it to be clean. So I think that's a very, very appropriate here. Um, also, um, it talks about, um, I, th I thought this one was interesting just because I probably have seen it in an athletic training facility before, um, but it says any equipment, such as like weight benches, athletic pads that have holes that are exposed with foam should be covered or discarded. And I know yeah. I've seen athletic training tables that have holes in them. And I'm like, uh, somebody's gonna be buying some duct tape or redoing a, a, a table there. So um, yeah, so any, have you ever redone a table, I guess? So that's kind of a, kind of a fun little topic here. <laughs> I've, I've not. Um, so both of mine actually have holes in them. Um, the, the two treatment tables I have, my taping table is like an all plastic, like mobile top one. So that's, that's kind of nice. I don't have to worry about it but um, I'm gonna be buying some duct tape. So um, it's been on my list to do. I know a couple of other uh, ATs around Indy that have um, redone their tables. Um, and it's just somebody I need to get with them and figure out how to do it. But no, I've, n I've not done that, but I'm still on the same page. I saw that and I was like, oh, well, both those tables have holes. So I best better buy some duct tape, make sure I seal them up really well. And then on top of that, making sure the kids aren't picking at them when they're sitting on the table, because that's why the holes go from this tiny little shred to this giant gaping hole with all the foam disappearing is <laughs> because they like to mess with them. And so um, that's that's on my list of things to do between now and July 6th. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also want to talk about you talk about hand sanitizer. Um, I probably should have bought stock in some of that before yeah, right? and, and uh, you know, <laughs> other things that we were using a lot more now. of. So um, one of the things that um, this document also talks about, um, it talks about that basically um, face coverings. And so I'm making sure that people have the ability to have a face covering covering at practice as long as it doesn't impede their health. Um, yep. But then also maybe interacting like you're going to have a face mask, but you know, are you going to have, I guess, I guess my question here is, are you going to have your patients when you're interacting with them, wear a face mask or a face shield and hand sanitize before they interact with you just as you would with them? Uh, that that's the goal. Um, and like I said, we don't have our set policies in place, but my uh, initial inclination is that, as an athletic trainer, we'll have something more like a surgical mask, maybe even an N95 if you can get a hold of them and can afford that type of uh, PPE. But then asking at a minimum that our coaches, athletes, um, anybody that's going to come into that athletic training room wear at least a cloth face covering and then hand sanitizing the same amount that I do anytime you touch something, anytime that you, um, you know, interact with an object in the athletic training room that you're sanitizing just as much. So like you said, I mean, man, if we had known face shields and 95s and hand sanitizer was going to be this hard to get, I would have bought stock in this well into, you know, 2019 before all this happened. So absolutely. <laughs>
Um, one thing I do want to touch on um, a little bit too about um, just kind of making sure that we're cleaning and sanitizing um, and it mentioned in this, uh, this document in class um, that it says no sharing of clothing, shoes, towels, or water bottles. Um, and then it also talks about that shared hydration stations um, that they should not be utilized except for filling individual labeled water bottles. Um, so I know that, you know, especially in the spring, just because of the weather, it's just super easy to have a water tree or there's water mm -hmm. fountains around. And so maybe talk about some things that you have thought of, or maybe some things that um, could be happening here to prevent sharing of water bottles or any hydration stations. Yeah, the, the hydration station thing is going to be a killer for football. Um, for sure, because we use a few of those and it makes life so much easier because we don't have to provide water bottles. You don't have to worry about 10 gallon coolers and constantly refilling things in between each one. Um, so that's going to make things hard. Um, the one thing I've thought of as far as um, trying to make sure that we maintain hydration, but we're also being safe with all this uh, with with the COVID pandemic is putting out those 10 gallon coolers like we used to before we had a hydration, hydration station or tree or um, whatever people have available and either designating a manager to fill individual water bottles, wearing gloves, hand sanitizing in between touching each thing, that kind of thing. And that's something I'm willing to help out with if I'm available and out of practice um, or teaching these athletes, you know, you're touching your own water bottle which is fine, but hand sanitize before you touch the nozzle to fill your water bottle and then hand sanitize again after. So maybe we put a giant pump of hand sanitizer out there and that's the expectation with that too. Um, the ones, I, and I, this is something I need to get more clarification on. I understand like the, the nozzle ones where you have to squeeze and like it sprays it out, but we do have an old like PVC pipe, pipe style that basically spurts the water like a water fountain. And so I don't know because they're spaced so far apart and there's no real contact between or potential contact between hand, mouth, and nozzle if that still would work. I, and I, I don't have an answer on that. I have no idea. But that was a thought was if we could do a couple of those old school PVC pipes like I used when I was playing, um, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s um, before they had all these fancy electric ones. Is that something we can go to? I, and I don't know. So there's a few things you can think of. The biggest thing is the towels and uh, water bottles discussing this with people is they're going to be expected to bring their own. And if they don't have it, we'll have to figure out something, but we're not, I know from our, from our end or from my end, I can't afford to supply every kid with their own water bottle off of my budget and same thing with the towels. So um, and then for the first, you know, first couple of weeks, um, outside of like wiping sweat away and that kind of stuff, they're, they're not using locker rooms, that kind of stuff. So they don't, they're not showering on site. So we don't have to worry about that stuff quite as much. Um, we will eventually, but, um, and I'm not really sure how that'll all work either. So there's definitely a lot more questions than answers on that stuff right now, because we, I mean, we're scrambling trying to catch up at this point. Um, with that only being a couple of weeks away. Yeah, absolutely.
Uh, turning gears here just a little bit, um, I think a lot of people have concerns maybe of, and I think we kind of touched on this a little bit about, let's say somebody does test positive for COVID-19 or how, you know, you know, with so many high schools in Indiana, um, you know, we can't test every single person, do a COVID test every single day on every single student athlete. Um, has there been any discussions or anything that, anything that you've heard of from any athletic trainers about there's a potential doing COVID-19 testing on student athletes? Um, maybe it's random or I guess, I don't know. I mean, so many things that you maybe have heard. Um, I've not heard anything just because I know the cost is, it's not doable from a high school standpoint for, to test everybody. Um, in an ideal world, we would test every single athlete every day when they walked in the door and have that answer before they stepped on the field. That's, that's not how it works. Even in the professional level, they're trying to figure out how all that's going to work. That way they can get back to sports. Um, the, the antibody testing, I think, is interesting. Um, I know there's a lot of things out there that say they're not super reliable or that certain ones aren't reliable and ones are more reliable, and it kind of depends. Um, I think that's interesting because then that tells you kind of a picture as to who's had it or who has the antibodies for it. So then you can kind of base some things off of that. Um, but then again, it's, it's cost. And then the worry from that is, or not the worry, but the, the issue with that is who's paying for it because the school districts can't afford it. The athletic departments can't afford it. Are parents going to foot the bill for a hundred dollar test for that kind of thing? Like, I, I don't know. How are we going to, we can't mandate that or can we, I don't know. Um, but like I said, it, I think that screening process is the biggest step in the right direction from a high school level. Now, if somebody tests positive um, or has the, has this uh, symptoms and temperature, I know that we're going to strongly push. And I think the IHSA has put that out there. And so is this in-class document. Um, they need to see their, their physician, their primary care physician be tested. And then they are, basically out of school, out of athletics, out of everything until they test negative. And then there's a re-entry to school guideline kind of step-by-step -step process for those students. So hopefully we never have to use it. Um, but I, I imagine at some point we're going to have to, and we'll have to work through those things as they happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of un, uh, unanswered questions here. And then obviously the state as well as the IHSAA and different health systems are going to come out with some things about, you know, if you, the screening tool, I think what I'm kind of hearing, uh, I'm not putting a statement on your, you know, your answers here, but you know, just kind of a generalized uh, view that I'm seeing here is that if someone has enough of those screening things where it's like, okay, you need to probably go get tested, you know, yeah. refer them on to their primary care, but then there's going to be a re-entry guide, whether they're, tested negative or tested positive to COVID-19. I think just with the COVID-19 positive, that might be some, maybe some start contact tracing yeah. types of things that might start have to happen. Or maybe that sport may have to say, okay, we got screened a little bit more on these people because they were, you know, like a football lineman. They're yeah. all right there on the line. So maybe we got to screen those even a little bit more. I guess maybe some, maybe talk a little bit about that or if you have any thoughts yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, I think, Part of it is similar, like when you're talking about these kids that are, you know, they have all these symptoms or they have this many things with this. It's similar to what we kind of learned over, you know, it was about 10 years ago when we started changing all of our concussion policies. 
um, if you think about it, where not only was it, okay, they got knocked unconscious, so they obviously are concussed, we're going to treat them that way, but they hit their head and they have a couple of symptoms. Well, we should probably make sure that this, that there's not something else going on. So even if they don't have a fever, but they have like three or four of the symptoms, okay, well, that's probably something where we need to get this checked out. Whereas the same thing, I have a kid that tells me they don't remember hitting their head on anything, but they play football or they play soccer and they head a ball all the time, that kind of thing. And they've got this list of symptoms. We should probably refer you to doc and see kind of what he thinks and where we're at with this. You know, it may be nothing. And then we go back to our return to play protocol, or it may actually be a concussion and we need to hold you out and do that kind of thing. So I think it's similar in that guy in that reference that the way we're going to have to view it is similar to those, those policies we have on our uh, concussions and our state law on concussions. Um, as far as the, the re-entry stuff, it's just going to be case by case. It's going to be different. Um, and I'm sure everybody will have their own interpretation of how we're going to do things and what's best. And, you know, these athletes are generally going to be a lot healthier than your average sedentary high school student that doesn't do anything physically active. Um, so does that mean we can push them back a little quicker? Maybe, maybe not. I, I, and I don't know, like this is a lot of, like, I feel like we're doing this <laughs> trying to help answer questions. We're creating more questions than we're answering. Um, but it's, we have to start somewhere. So, um, and hopefully, like I said, I hope, hope we can get it right the first time. Absolutely. And I think it's, we don't have all the answers, um, but I think this is a great thing for athletic trainers, other sports medicine professionals listening, you know, Hey, this is just something to think about and, and know that while sometimes we think in our head, it's going to be an easy answer. We always think about, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, and then now you have a lot of different situations. So I think a case by case situation, maybe, maybe where we're going. So yeah, yeah a lot of, a lot of good things here. Um, I don't have any other questions. Um, if you have any um, thing you wanted to add to the podcast, any recommendations, thoughts um, for athletic trainers and others listening to the podcast. Um, so it just, the biggest thing is following what, what your hospital or your high school or your school that you're employed at puts forward. I would encourage a lot of the athletic trainers that are there and are out there right now to get as involved as you can in these discussions, because what the schools put forth is what you're going to have to follow. And what the hospitals put forth, if you're employed through a hospital, is what you're going to have to follow. So if you don't have a voice in any of that, then it becomes really hard for you to put your two cents in on the back end once the policy is already made. So I'm in an ideal world where I've been at my school for 10 years. I've been with this hot, this, you know, um, community health network and our sports medicine program since its inception eight years ago. So I'm a little bit more entrenched in everything and have my hands in it a little bit more, but I would still, especially when the schools are putting forth their policies, strongly encourage our athletic trainers around the state to really get as involved as you can. Yes. It creates extra work. Yes. There's more meetings with it, but it's going to go better overall and you're going to have more of a say in the healthcare of our the athletes at your school or the athletes across the state if you're involved and then you're able to actually create some relationships and show them our value and our worth in this situation also so 
Um, I think that's really important and some way that, you know, some of our athletic trainers can really tie into their school and become more involved and show not just the athletic directors, most of them understand us, but that upper administration, those superintendents, assistant superintendents, school principals, that, hey, we're a good resource to use for this kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I just want everyone let everyone know that's listening. Um, the document we were talking about today, again, uh, was called In-Class COVID-19 Health and Safety Reentrance uh, Guidance. Um, you can find that on uh, the state of Indiana's page of the Indiana Department of Education. Um, you can also check out the IHSAA's official statement. It has a link to that document. Um, IATA, if you go on our IATA website on the main homepage, we do have a COVID-19 uh, link. It's at the very top of our homepage. Just click on that. There's a variety of resources in there for athletic trainers and sports medicine professionals um, that you can find a lot of resources and help you um, or help your schools and health networks to be able to kind of create some of these policies. Um, obviously, the CDC, uh, an amazing website as well to find information. So um, any other resources out there that you can think of, Carl, than what I've mentioned? So those are the ones I can think of off the top of my head. Um, there's a couple with um, that aren't as much COVID, but more um, deconditioned athlete um, type things where, you know, looking at them coming back um, or these athletes coming back at the beginning of July. Um, I think there's the National Federation of Strength and Conditioning Coaches has a document on that um, that I can, can send to you um, that we're kind of looking at as far as conditioning and that kind of thing for these athletes because a lot of them are in that deconditioned state. But as far as COVID, those are the best ones, at least for our state right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I let you go, I want to also let people know that you are the National Athletic Training Month uh, Committee Chair for the IATA. Um, and we know that March kind of, uh, can I say, interrupted by COVID-19. <laughs> um, this year. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about um, that committee and what, what you guys do, um, not just, so, in, just not in March, but, you know, throughout the year and things like that. Throughout the year. So um, I'm the, the head of that committee. We have a, it's a very small committee um, right now, and I'd like to grow it more. Um, most of the athletic trainers I have on my committee are Indianapolis-based. So it makes it really difficult to reach all the corners of the state like we'd like to. Um, the biggest thing is celebrating ATs in March. Um, we do a, a, um, a photo, like an action photo contest that we've done the past couple of years that have gotten really good responses um, and doing some things for like free EVPs or um, for the state meeting that's, um, you know, being able to, to put those things out for athletic trainers. Um, had a little bit of involvement in our um, safety and football campaign this past fall, um, something we'd like to do again this year. I'm not sure how well that's going to work with all the COVID stuff that we have going on, um, but a lot of that's been kind of turned on its head right now. Um, one thing I've thought about for this upcoming year and our, our team's talking about is celebrating all of the athletic trainers that across our state had to deal with this and found their own unique ways to help athletes to show their value, to prove their worth in our state and, you know, how, how they got through this on their own. So that's something we're, because we have this unique situation that started in national athletic training month, well, let's celebrate it next athletic training month and figure that out. So, um, 
you know, that's something, and I'm always looking for more members or more uh, involvement in our committee. I said, we've got a small committee of me and four others, um, and all of us are Indianapolis based. So um, that's something I'd, I'd like, you know, to get out there to people is if you're looking to get involved in IATA, would be glad to have you on the National Athletic Training Month Committee. Absolutely. Thanks so much for that, that plug there. And you yep. can find Carl's contact information. I'm on the IATA website. If you go to committees, you'll find that under um, NATM and it has Carl's name, just click that and you can find his email. And so if you're willing to volunteer or if you're willing to volunteer anywhere within the IATA, we would love to have you um, athletic trainers here in Indiana. So um, Carl, just thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah. Th thanks for having me on. I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to um, part one of our um, two-parter uh, COVID-19 pandemic series uh, where we're talking about returning to fall sports. Uh, next episode, we're going to talk um, with an athletic trainer in the university and college setting. I um, hope all of our listeners have enjoyed the podcast today, and we hope you subscribe and rate our podcast on the podcast platform you are listening from. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Indiana Athletic Trainers Association podcast, hosted by the Young Professionals Committee. The IATA would like to thank elite sponsor, Methodist Sports Medicine, and bronze sponsors, Ultra Ankle and Myotech. Be sure to follow the IATA on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube for information on any upcoming events.